This episode of Zero Brightness is brought to you by you. You can head to patreon.com slash zero brightness to sign up to support the show directly and get bonus content multiple times per week. Thank you to everyone who supports the show, and I look forward to meeting more of you soon. Okay, let's do an experiment. Let's pretend that it's summer of 2004. You have nothing to do, and generally speaking, nothing important on your mind. You don't really have responsibilities. You're a teenager. You hang out with your friends, you do weird shit, you drive around listening to weird music. That's about it. Inevitably, once a week, you end up at your local used video game store, browsing for weird, cheap, cast-off titles on the PS2 or maybe the GameCube. Kind of stuff that you've never heard of and you know basically nothing about, but you're willing to take a gamble on for between $5 and $15, just based on how weird the cover is and how bad the graphic design is on the back. If this sounds familiar to you at all, then you are absolutely familiar with FromSoft's PS2 output. Yes, that's right, FromSoft, the company that would later become famous for the Soulsborne series, originally were purveyors of sort of weirdo budget games on the PS1 and PS2. Personally, these were my favorite games from this era. The kind of stuff that barely anybody knew about, but once they did, became completely obsessed with. I remember there were just all sorts of games on the PS2 that would fit into this category, and they spanned genres. You had rhythm games like Guitaru Man, which had such a weird, unique take on the genre that also really nailed the feeling of like viscerally shredding on a guitar. You also had games like Mad Maestro, that went in the opposite direction with the same idea. In the RPG realm, you had games like Shadow Hearts, or even Sukaden 3, I guess, which sort of took a weird, offbeat approach to the aesthetics and storytelling of a traditional RPG that you may have played on the PS1. For action-adventure, you had games like Way of the Samurai, which mixed choose-your-own-adventure with GTA and dressed it up in a feudal Japanese aesthetic. All these games shared a common feel. Specifically, they were all super goofy, but they were still really, really fun and engaging. It wasn't just a garbage pile that you were laughing at, you were laughing with the game. And oftentimes, strong writing, a good sense of humor, and or just a good aesthetic would really, really carry the game. I first learned about FromSoft because they rushed out a pair of fantasy action-adventure games for the PS2. Those being Eternal Ring and Evergrace. These were two really alluring games in the early days of the PS2, specifically because the PS2's launch lineup kinda sucked. And even in the early days of the PS2, I remember the only standout title really being Onimusha. A game that's really fun to play and play and replay, but after your 15th run, you might be a little bit sick of it. Eternal Ring and Evergrace both kind of had a PS1 RPG look and feel to them, so I was excited to pick up and check out both of these games. Now, like a lot of FromSoft stuff from this era, I remember being both a little bit disappointed with it and also endlessly fascinated by it. Eternal Ring is kind of a bog-standard fantasy action RPG, But it has a bunch of really deep RPG systems that let you mess with your character's stats in your own playstyle in a way that was a lot deeper than something like Zelda. Evergrace ended up taking the opposite approach by keeping its gameplay really simple, but having a really crazy graphical style and really wild music. Seriously, look up the soundtrack on YouTube. It's fantastic and it's really, really weird. Totally worth checking out, even if the game itself is a little bit generic. These games represented an interesting step forward for FromSoft while still being totally within the company's MO. In the PS1 days, FromSoft had basically stuck with one core concept, making modern versions of classic first-person dungeon crawler games, 
type of stuff you would have played on like the PC engine in the late 80s or early 90s. Games like Kingsfield, for example, or even Echo Knight represented new and fresh takes on that genre. In the PS2 days, FromSoft sort of stepped ahead into making 3D third-person action versions of those same games. Yet they also found time for some pretty wild stylistic diversions. Most notably, Cookie and Cream, which was a puzzle platformer game meant to be played by two people holding the same controller. It's very weird and very cool. And I remember back in the day, I used to use it sort of like the relationship tester machine that you might find at like a carnival or a midway, where two people grab brass handles and it tells you how compatible you are. Cookie and Cream is like that for the modern age, and it works incredibly well, let me tell you. They also made Kuon, a pretty bog-standard survival horror game that also took a lot of influence from Fatal Frame in the way that it's paced and presented. They also had what was considered their flagship series at the time, Armored Core. Now, Armored Core was like a Japanese take on something like Mech Warrior. It was a giant robot game that let you customize your robot in great detail and added a bunch of like RPG elements to what was also kind of a standard third-person shooter game. The mechanics were deep, it required a lot of time and investment, but it was really fun. The Armored Core series was really, really great. And it was really refreshing at the time to have a deep, satisfying, giant robot game. To this day, it still kind of mystifies me that there aren't more games like this. Once again, you've got Mech Warrior, you've got the comically overcomplicated Steel Battalion, you've got the Armor Core games. That's kind of it, right? Everything else is either greatly simplified or just not that good. The thing about all these games, though, is that I would say I'm more of an appreciator of this catalog, more than a fan of FromSoft's output. I have a lot of fuzzy memories tied to a lot of these games, but when I actually think about them, I don't love any of them. I mean, we even covered Kuon for this show, and I don't know, I kind of came off as a hater of Kuon, even though I don't hate it. It was just a game that really disappointed and frustrated me, and continues to, to this day. I guess what I'm trying to say is that if you're familiar with FromSoft at this time, You sort of know them as a really interesting purveyor of budget games that were aimed at hardcore gamers that also managed to have really interesting ideas and aesthetics hidden within these games. They're kind of an if-you-know-you-know type developer. So it was really weird for me to just not pay attention to their output for a decade and returned to find that they had become world famous for creating Dark Souls. Now, I say all this to make a simple point. I had a bone to pick with Dark Souls before I ever even played a second of it. I saw this grim, dark, low fantasy action adventure game that was aimed at like super hardcore gamers. And I asked myself, What happened to the company that made Cookie and Cream? What happened to the company that made Metal Wolf Chaos? What happened to the company that just made dumb, fun, weird games? Why were we now playing Game of Thrones X Berserk XD Anime Reload? Why? And I'll say now that was kind of an ignorant stance. Ultimately, the Souls series is exactly what I would expect FromSoft to make, given the time and the money and the popularity that they've garnered in the years since those PS2 days. It represents the kind of tunnel vision that led them to create basically one type of game throughout the entire PS1 era, and riffs on that same type of game throughout most of the PS2 era. It also is full of the kind of dark, sad, and poetic storytelling and world building that we saw in games like Echo Knight Beyond, even if it wasn't done in as elegant a way as in a game like Echo Knight Beyond, which is a masterpiece that I'm eventually going to cover for this show. 
Now that's not to say that Dark Souls is amazing. Because here's the thing. Previously, I made a bonus episode all about why I don't like the original Dark Souls, which from here on out I'm going to call DS1 for clarity and simplicity. I still don't like that game. I think DS1 is a mess, and I think it's super flawed, and I think it's overrated. But a funny thing happened to me recently. My friend Michelle, who I'll be speaking to in the next episode, recommended that I play Bloodborne. And thinking that it would be fun to do an episode discussing a game that I thought I wouldn't like with one of my very close friends and artistic collaborators, I decided to pick it up and play it. And, you know, after a little bit of a harsh intro and getting over that kind of learning curve hump that you get at the beginning of every Souls game, I found that I actually loved it. Like, I love Bloodborne. At this point, I don't know how much I've played of Bloodborne, but it is a lot. And somewhere between realizing that I like the game and devoting untold hours to it, a question popped into my mind. Why do I love this game, but dislike the original Dark Souls so much? It's a simple question, but one that started to bother me the more I thought about it. I needed answers. So, today's episode is like a prelude to the discussion episode that's coming next time, where we talk about Bloodborne specifically. Today is about me trying to figure out why I dislike the original Dark Souls, but like so many other games in the series, or at least am interested in other games in the series. I'm going to talk a little bit about the methodology I used, and I'm going to give sort of a qualitative analysis of the different games in the series, and the things that appeal to me and don't appeal to me. This is the sort of thing that I know is going to annoy some people and piss off others, but I think it's interesting. I'm basically trying to use that little part of my brain that learned research science in college to try and think about video games, and try and think about a series like this, one that some people love, some people hate, and I find myself in the middle of someone who used to hate it and now loves it. And once again, I'm not going to be talking too much about Bloodborne this time because I want to save a lot of my thoughts and ideas for next time when we discuss that game specifically. So here's what I did. When I was about halfway through Bloodborne, I started up a playthrough of Dark Souls 3, a game that I've had in my Steam library for a while now, but have been kind of too disgusted to touch. After playing about six hours of that, I went and did some research on the other games in the series that I haven't played. And these are either because I just don't own them or I don't own a platform that can play them. And that would be Dark Souls 2, Demon's Souls, and Sekiro. I also went back and watched a lot of videos of the original Dark Souls. Now, I've played about 40 hours of DS1, most of the main game, and as some friends have told me, most of the key parts in the main game. After all this, I started to notice some design trends, and I found some pretty interesting things pertaining to how FromSoft balances these games and the changes that they make between games. I think the main changes they make are to the combat system and the health system. What I found so engaging about Bloodborne is that the combat system is fast. It prioritizes aggression. And because of the increased speed, it gives the player a greater sense of agency. You feel like the actions you're undertaking are your own. The health system is also vastly different than in DS1 for two distinct reasons. Number one, healing items are now consumables, which can be purchased from a vendor and easily found as item drops from slain enemies. The other huge change is that you can actually now regain health by attacking an enemy after you've been hit. The quicker you attack the enemy, the easier it is to regain the health that you've lost. Once again, it prioritizes aggressive play, it prioritizes speed, 
and it makes you move and think in a different way. I think the main concept here is forgiveness. Bloodborne is a game that forgives a lot of your mistakes. Now this stands in stark contrast to DS1, which uses the Estus system, which are basically a series of refillable flasks that are extremely limited. You generally have between five and seven. They only refill when you die or when you rest at a bonfire. As you may or may not know, every time you rest at a bonfire, every enemy in the area respawns. So you're balancing refilling your health items with respawning every enemy in the area. This works in tandem with the level design, which I'll talk about shortly, to create a scenario in which you're expected to complete a perfect run of each area or each section of each area. Bonfires are spaced pretty far apart, even from bosses. So if you're trying to complete a section of an area or trying to complete a boss, the idea is that you need to do a perfect run. If you fuck up, you have to use one of your health items and you're not going to get another one. Bloodborne really plays with and subverts this idea. You have a lot of health items. The default maximum is 20 and you can even use some of the game's systems to increase that. Furthermore, as I mentioned earlier, enemies are constantly dropping these and it's very, very easy to stockpile them. Couple that with the system that lets you regain health by using aggressive playstyles, and you have a game that doesn't really hold you to that standard of perfection. You can fuck up. You can make mistakes. To me, that was really the huge monumental shift that got me to see what is so great about these games. When you're allowed to fuck up, when you're allowed to customize your playstyle and play the way you want to play, you can actually see how much these games have to offer. Now, looking at the series as a whole, you can see that these tweaks to the health system are something that are regularly done from game to game. It seems clear to me that the designers are trying to find different ways to structure and balance this type of game. Across the series, it seems that the healing system is something that has been up and down. Demon Souls seems to have used a consumable-based healing system, like Bloodborne, and Dark Souls 2 seems to have used a hybrid system, where you still had Estus flasks, but you could also purchase consumable health items. Dark Souls 3 also kind of uses a similar system. It's mostly the Estus system from DS1, but it's easy to find spells and items that will refill your health very early in the game. The difficulty is also a lot more balanced, so you're not thrown in at the deep end and expected to be 100% perfect from the jump. That's a big change from DS1. Now, talking about the health system or the healing system really goes hand in hand with talking about level design. And I think that's a super important part of any Souls type game, especially when you're discussing the difficulty. Personally, the thing I found so refreshing about Bloodborne was that the level design was not just open, but also very open-ended. That's one thing that's kind of been a point of contention throughout the entire Soulsborne series. Are these games open-ended? Are they open-world? It kind of seems like if you ask five different people, you'd get five different answers. To me, it seems to vary greatly from game to game. Bloodborne has a few things going for it. First and foremost, it is truly open-ended for most of the game. There's tons of optional side content, there's multiple areas that you can do in different orders. If you want proof of this, just look up the IGN guide that I used. Side note, IGN guide? Really? What year is it? I digress. If you look up that guide, you'll see that at the end of each area, there's multiple branching paths. 
And I frequently found that I was going in a path and an order that was diametrically opposed to whatever was in that guide. It's really, really fascinating. Even within the areas themselves, there's an openness to the design. Not only can you approach an area in multiple different ways and do challenges completely out of order, you also have a lot of room to maneuver. I found that some of the more difficult and frustrating areas could really be dealt with by running through them and dealing with the consequences later. To me, this was hugely different than DS1. DS1, despite many people claiming that it's an open-ended or open-area type game, is really, really linear. There are tons of cramped areas, there's lots of ledges that are easy to fall off of, and there are multiple areas where you are expected to go in a straight line and fight and kill every single enemy that you encounter. Now, in Bloodborne, that's not the case at all. Not only can you run through certain areas or choose which enemies you want to engage or not engage, you also have a lot of branching pathways, secret areas, and great shortcuts. I don't want to get too into the level design here because it's something, once again, that I want to talk about next time. But looking at something like the woods area in Bloodborne, God, there's just such a sophistication to design there. Each time you unlock a new shortcut, it's like the world opening up all over again. The design here is truly incredible. The sense of discovery you get when you find those shortcuts is amazing. But also, the fact that there's enough room for you to maneuver around enemies means that in a practical sense, going from a bonfire to a boss is a lot more doable than in DS1. In DS1, I think it's a lot more linear. You're expected to get good enough at the combat and to understand the systems enough that if you have to go from bonfire to bonfire and fight every enemy along the way, you can and you will. That's something that I just found to be super, super frustrating. Now playing Dark Souls 3, it's a lot more like Bloodborne. Actually, in many ways, the combat is sped up like in Bloodborne, but also just that level design component is a lot more forgiving. Bonfires are closer together. There's way more checkpoints. And once again, the level design is larger and more open. Currently, I'm in the Undead Settlement, and that's an area that's actually super fun to explore. It's easy to get lost in, but getting lost is actually enjoyable is part of the fun, and once again, it's because the areas are large enough and well-designed enough that if you need to run past an enemy that you're not currently powerful enough to fight, you can. You can run past and figure it out later. Once again, there is forgiveness here, and I think that's a quality that is sorely lacking in DS1. Now I have a great music metaphor for this that I'm going to get into later. But I want to pause here for a second to talk a little bit more about level design. Because I kind of had an epiphany while playing Bloodborne. Which is that that game specifically calls back to a couple different eras of video game level design. I think at the root of it is the 16-bit action games. The perfection of which is obviously Shinobi 3 on the Sega Genesis. Now, the amazing thing about Shinobi 3 is that it's a super challenging action game that also is incredibly balanced. And the two sides of it that it's balancing is your own basic skill level with the game. We'll call that the get good component and also a memorization aspect. Because the levels are short and extremely linear, it is incumbent upon you to both 
memorize certain parts of the game and also to be good enough at manipulating the systems to get past the obstacles and challenges in the game. When you reach a good balance between those two aspects, the player is able to navigate through the game not only because they have a basic understanding of its systems and controls, but also because they have a familiarity with the levels and the level design. The individual traps that are placed or the things that might have taken them by surprise on a first play won't catch them on a second or third play. Now, this is an extremely fine balance. And it's one that is really easily disrupted by modern game systems and modern game design. Unlike in the 16-bit era, games now can have all sorts of weird things that happen to the player. There can be inconsistencies in physics or enemy placement, etc, etc, etc. A great example is in Dark Souls 3, despite being a very beautiful and generally well-made game on a technical level, enemies' weapons will still clip through walls, so you might get randomly just destroyed by a poleaxe clipping through a wall. That is not great. Now, despite the fact that I could say the same thing for Bloodborne, I feel like it gets a lot closer to that Shinobi 3 balance than anything else in the Soulsborne series. And specifically, Bloodborne actually reminds me of the PS2 era remakes of 8 and or 16-bit action games. Games like Shinobi on the PS2 or Ninja Gaiden on the Xbox. Those games took those 8 and 16-bit ideas and modernized them in a graphical sense while still keeping the gameplay old school and hardcore, for lack of better terms. Once again, sorry for saying hardcore so much. The idea here is that despite a game having more advanced graphics and a little bit more sophisticated gameplay, it can still stick to those old school ideas of balancing mastery over a game's systems with basic memorization of a specific level or course. The really satisfying thing about a game in this style is once you have enough knowledge, whether that's of the game systems or the challenges that you're going to face in a level, you can sort of breeze through it and really feel like you surmounted a great challenge. It is once again such a fine balance, though. I think Shinobi 3 is maybe the best game ever made or at least it's like top five shit within this genre but you can look at something that seems to be very similar to it like the ghost and goblin series and the balance is suddenly completely upset it's actually kind of funny to mention ghosts and goblins because Dark Souls seems to have taken a lot of influence from that series. You know, it's got that gothic, low fantasy, horror aesthetic mixed with extreme hyper difficulty. Yet, Ghosts and Goblins is a series that I don't think is really any fun at all. I love the visual design, I love the aesthetic, but actually playing those games is miserable. And while playing DS1 at the lowest moments, I really thought about Ghosts and Goblins because there's a lot of similarities between those games in terms of how frustrating they can be and how unfair they can be. Now, comparing that to Shinobi 3, Shinobi 3 is a game that is very hard, but it's also really fun. It's really satisfying and rewarding. It has great aesthetics, great visuals, and great music. Even if you're having a tough time with that game, it's probably going to pull you in again and again just because of how beautiful and satisfying of a game it is. I really can't say the same about anything in the Ghosts and Goblins series. The difference between these two game series, to me, is the use of space. In Ghosts and Goblins, space exists as a way to punish the player. 
enemies move in unexpected ways, things appear in unexpected places, and if you jump for them, you're punished. In Shinobi, space is just part of the puzzle. You're encouraged to move in unexpected ways and try new things, because that's how you get a jump on the enemies in the game. I guess I'm trying to say that within that world of super difficult games, and in this case specifically 16-bit action platformers, there are kind of two philosophies on how to design a level and how to set up difficult obstacles for a player. You either choose the Ghosts and Goblins route of having a very linear, very intricately designed set of tricks and traps that if the player deviates from it all, they're punished, or something like Shinobi that's a little bit looser and more open and doesn't punish the player for exploring. When I found myself playing, researching, and analyzing the Souls games, I started to realize that from game to game, they kind of bounced around this spectrum. Demon Souls and Dark Souls are definitely more on the Ghosts and Goblins side of things. You're expected to understand the game's systems and combat, sure, but the main thing is knowing the layout of the level. Knowing where traps and enemies are placed is crucial because you can avoid them. Although the game suggests that the player should explore this huge, mysterious world that suddenly opened up around them, the game actually punishes exploration. This is one of my big problems with the game, the fact that I couldn't just wander and explore at my own pace. I always needed to be watching out for weirdly placed enemies or unexpected traps, and if it was my first time through an area, I basically needed to have a guide open, one that I was constantly checking to see if I was about to encounter something unexpected. This is something that I think those 16-bit games really got right, that modern games in the style can sometimes mess up. In the 16-bit area, you didn't have things like 3D space or complicated mechanics in order to bog down a basic action platformer. It was literally just, do you know the layout of the level? Do you know how to play the game? Now, I think one of the coolest things about these Souls games is that they take these deep and complicated RPG mechanics and map them onto what is essentially just an action-adventure game. But it also opens up a lot of opportunities for the game to just be really cruel and unfair. For me, my biggest gripe was actually with the NPCs. This, honestly, this drove me nuts, and for two reasons. Number one, there are multiple NPCs in the game that you can send away forever by choosing the wrong dialogue option. It's something that's really maddening because none of the dialogue in the game, like, makes sense. None of the conversations follow any kind of logic, so you often feel like you're just choosing responses at random. But you're not. You need to have that guide open, because if you press the wrong thing, you can end an upgrade or character class path for yourself forever. The other thing is the fact that you can accidentally aggro enemies and do the exact same thing. Or, in my case, you can actually make an enemy for life who will stalk, hunt, and kill you for the whole rest of the game. It really sucks. It doesn't feel, you know, interesting or immersive. It just feels kind of broken. You can see how they got to some of these ideas. Like, they are interesting thought experiments. Like... What if there were more consequences for your actions? Or what if you could interact with NPCs in realistic ways based on the game world? I can totally imagine somebody who worked on this game playing Ocarina of Time, going up to a vendor and like whacking them a hundred times with a sword and wondering, hey, why don't they ever react? Why doesn't anything happen? Well, the answer is that it's just not a good idea. It doesn't make for a fun video game if you can accidentally kill a vendor and not be able to buy items for the rest of the game or upgrade your character. Things like this are just not very engaging. I think when you couple this with some of the nuts and bolts things about DS1, it makes the game super frustrating. Now, when I say nuts and bolts things, I mean the basic controls and mechanics of the game, which once again, I still don't like. DS1 has this super, super slowed down feel to it that makes the game to me, feel almost turn-based. Like you press a button and you wait for the reaction. It's so slow that at times I felt like I wasn't in control of my character. And I think, to me, there's a disconnect there. Because like I said, the minute I picked it up and started playing it, I was like, oh, it's like an old 16-bit action platformer. 
That's really the first thing my mind jumped to when I started playing it. And I like those games, and I've played a lot of those games. So I get the extreme difficulty, I get what you're supposed to do, and how you're supposed to play it. Just like in those games, you're probably going to be stuck in the first level for quite a while. You just need to run it over and over and over to become familiar with the controls and how the game works. That's just how the games are played. In DS1 though, I think those sluggish controls and the imprecise movement coupled with that super tight level design where it's easy to fall off something and die made for a really, really frustrating experience. And one that I think misses the point of those old 16-bit games. In those games, the systems were so simple and the controls were so tight that the player was supposed to feel agency. If they fucked up, it's because they fucked up. The game works, the controls work, everything works. You just need to, sorry, get good at it in order to explore the game and, you know, have a good time playing it. Dark Souls falls into the trap of throwing too many variables and too many question marks at you all at once. There's so many different ways that you can fail. There's so many things that can go wrong that just becomes overwhelming. Now, when I play Dark Souls, I think there's a big, big learning curve difficulty hump right at the start of the game, which most of these games have. And then I hit another one around the time that I quit, which is in Anne Orlando at the Siegfried and Roy boss fight, whatever those two assholes are called. And throughout that whole playtime, which once again was about 40 hours, I did a lot of side stuff and grinding and all that good stuff. I was really up and down on the game. There were times when I really, really loved it, and there were times when I just really, really hated it. And what got me to stop was exactly what I'm describing. The fact that I felt like when I failed, or if I really fucked something up and kind of trashed my save file, I didn't really feel like it was my fault. I didn't feel like I made an informed decision that fucked up my game world, or I didn't feel like I made a mistake that I could own that led me to the place where I was stuck. Now looking at the games on either side of DS1, it seems like they both embrace this kind of game design while also offering the player a little bit of help. Once again, Demon's Souls uses consumable health items, which I think is a huge change. It makes the game feel a little bit more like a traditional JRPG where you can stockpile items going into a fight and you have just a little bit more forgiveness while you play. That said, the level design is still really cramped and linear, and there are even some harsher penalties than in DS1 for failure, including, you know, cutting your life bar in half. That shit seems kind of insane. Now, DS2, on the other hand, is one that actually has a lot more in common with Bloodborne than most people give it credit for. It looks like a really interesting game. Once again, I haven't played it yet, but I'm going to. It feels like a mix between DS1 and Bloodborne. There are certain things that they made more difficult and more punishing, and there are other things that they actually made a lot less stressful for the player. I think the big one is a shift in combat focus, which is something that fans of the series can never really seem to agree on or find common ground on. Some people love the huge imposing enemies from Dark Souls, and some people prefer the more human-sized, skill-based fights from Bloodborne. And I'm going to kind of set up the dichotomy like that, and I know some people may not agree with that, but that's kind of how I see it. Dark Souls 2 seems to run with an idea that was hinted at in Dark Souls 1, which is that you can have a boss that's more or less the same size as the player character and acts in a pretty similar way. Every boss doesn't need to be this huge, screen-filling monstrosity that you're supposed to roll underneath and whack it in the butt. It, you know, it kind of gets old. It's very, very repetitive. It also introduces a much more open level design that prefers to fill rooms with enemies rather than, once again, place one or two huge enemies in your path. Now this is another huge change that leads directly into Bloodborne, because to me that's one of the amazing things about Bloodborne's level design, but I'll talk about that in a second. These changes represent a huge shift in mindset from DS1. Instead of just having to memorize a map, know everything that's between point A and point B, it's now more of a skills challenge. 
One of the biggest things in Dark Souls that some players either refuse to grasp or never end up grasping is that if you want to fight multiple enemies at once, if you want to get good at crowd control, you have to abandon the lock-on system completely. This is something that I think I kind of picked up early on in DS1, but once again, some people just choose not to or refuse to understand this. And I guess that makes DS2 super, super hard. I think it would also make Bloodborne kind of next to impossible. But I digress. The point here is that DS2 made some really, really big changes to the groundwork laid by DS1 and got a lot of shit for it. People were annoyed by these larger areas that had more enemies. People were underwhelmed by bosses that were all, quote, guys in armor. But to me, that's actually what's really interesting, fun, and engaging about these games. Areas where you have to abandon some of the main mechanics of the game in order to just use your wits and your skill are exciting. In bosses where you actually, once again, have to use the mechanics of the game are exciting. Watching some people play these games, as I have now from cruising that old YouTube, I find that some people approach these games sort of like gambling. They love that luck aspect, or they love that element of the game that's out of their hands, because when they win, it's like hitting a jackpot. Me, I'm not a gambler. That doesn't appeal to me at all, and I don't like it. So I'm really just here to play a game that challenges me and makes me use all the skills and tactics I have at my disposal to win. Now, I think you guys probably know I'm a huge Castlevania fan and generally a fan of any game that takes that style. And I think this is one thing that comes up over and over in those games. It's really hard to find a good balance in a Castlevania type boss because you not only have that 16-bit style difficulty balance problem, you also have that more modern problem of balancing mechanics. The game's basic mechanics are simple, but there's all these other things added on top. You know, ability systems, magic systems, armor systems, etc, etc, etc. When it all comes together, it's pretty magical. It'll be like a really tough boss fight that you just barely get through and feel like you really overcame a huge obstacle. But a bad boss is either too easy or way too hard. This is something that I think a lot of modern Metroidvania games have a huge issue with. I talked about it in the episode on this game, but Blasphemous really only gets one of its many boss fights right on a gameplay level. They're all amazingly eye-popping and super cool to see, but in terms of the way they play, they're either like way too easy and for a couple of them at the end, way too hard. There is, however, one boss fight right before the end against a character who's the same size as you and generally seems to have the same moveset and combat style. And it's incredible! It's so, so, so cool. It's like two high-level swordsmen just duking it out. And it's awesome. It challenges you to use all the skills you've learned in the game, but nothing really fancy, just blocking, dodging, parrying, etc. When I first saw footage of DS2 and saw people's complaints about it, I kind of thought back to that game and that boss fight. And I think this is going to be a big disparity between people who play these games. There are people who are going to love that traditional DS1 boss design where it's huge and room filling and there's tons of elements of luck and chance that come into play. And of course, it's kind of janky. And there are people like me who are going to prefer something that's smaller, that's tighter, and that's more polished. And that's pretty much how I describe almost everything about Bloodborne. Besides the level design, everything is smaller, tighter, and more polished. The combat is sped up and much, much, much tighter. The ability to regain health really makes the game feel like one of those PS2 era remakes of one of those 16-bit games. Everything is precise, everything works, and once again, it makes all the failures feel like your own. If you fuck up, you fuck up. This is also reflected in the boss design. Once again, the average boss in Bloodborne is a lot smaller than in Dark Souls, and I think this is a very, very important change. Moving things on a smaller scale makes it so that you actually think more critically about your movement, your skill set, where you're placed within the arena, and the actions you're going to undertake to defeat the boss. It's just much more engaging. And I will admit that there is an impressive and grand fatalism to the giant and seemingly invincible bosses in DS1, 
but it's a trick that you really can't rely on too much. After a while, if every boss is a huge screen-filling monstrosity, the player is no longer impressed. Once again, I think Shinobi 3 did this really well, where it kept most of its bosses in check until that giant blob man at the end of Body Weapon. And yeah, that shit is really gross and crazy, and you're really not expecting it. If every boss in Shinobi 3 was the giant fleshy blob man, I don't think it would hit as hard. Playing Dark Souls 3 also really seemed to confirm this viewpoint. I'm not sure why I didn't see a lot of people saying this, but honestly, Dark Souls 3 feels a lot like Bloodborne. It has combat that's tighter and faster, it has controls that feel a lot more like Bloodborne than they do DS1, and there's a level of polish to the whole game that suggests that they learned a lot of lessons from making Bloodborne. I mean, the jump from Dark Souls 1 and 2 to Bloodborne on a tech level and a visual design level is huge, and from Bloodborne to Dark Souls 3, it's similarly a pretty large leap. We're seeing our first truly modern-looking FromSoft game, and it is exactly as impressive as that suggests. Now to talk about the bosses in this game for a second. I know that there are still huge bosses in this game, and I know later on there are some giant, you know, biggest dude in the series type bosses, but just playing the early game and looking at some of the later game bosses, it seems like they are mostly more on that Bloodborne type scale. It's even interesting to see how some of the bosses seem to directly echo bosses from Bloodborne. Like, a few days ago I beat Vort of the Boreal Valley, and to me it's impossible not to see the similarities between that boss and Vicar Amelia in Bloodborne. I think the scale of these bosses, as well as the moveset and design, makes them a lot more approachable. Once again, there isn't that grand fatalism of, oh my god, how am I going to beat this giant thing? You feel a little bit more a sense of determination. You think, okay, there is a way to dodge their attacks, I actually have room to maneuver and position myself, maybe I'll try it again. This is also echoed in the level design, which in Dark Souls 3 is hugely inspired by Bloodborne. Yes, there are still steep drop-offs, unexpected cliffs, and say it with me, annoying archers. But you also have a lot more room to maneuver. You have a lot more space. Just like in Bloodborne, you actually have room to run if you need to. You have room to try different paths and try different methods for getting through an area. It just feels like you have a lot more power and agency. It's not just that you need to move from point A to point B and not die. You now can actually choose a path, you can choose your playstyle, and to me that represents a huge, huge change that takes these games from almost unplayable to super, super engaging. Once again, it goes back to Shinobi 3 versus Ghosts and Goblins, and I know which one I prefer. Now there are a couple of interesting conversations here about how game design clashes with fan perception as well. And this is something that I think really screwed me over when I played the original Dark Souls. If you look around online, there's a couple of things that people like to say that I don't really think are true. The first one is that you should start with DS1. Eh, wrong, no, absolutely not. I do think Bloodborne is the best intro to the series, but even if you wanted to stick with Dark Souls because it has that classic FromSoft vibe and it's iconic, Dark Souls 3 would 100% be the place to start. It's a much more balanced experience, it has a much better intro, it actually has like an intro area where you can learn the controls and not just get thrown in at the deep end. I mean, even Bloodborne doesn't really have that, you kind of do get thrown in at the deep end. And yeah, I just feel like Dark Souls 3 would be such a great way to get in this series. Such a great intro to the series. It's like how people remember DS1 playing rather than how it actually plays. And as far as I've played of it, I think it's a great game. I totally love it. Another thing though is what I mentioned earlier, that people like to say you can customize your playstyle however you want. These games are full of options and choices and you can just like have fun and be creative. And I don't really think that's true in every Dark Souls game. I think that's something that really, really opens up in Bloodborne and Dark Souls 3, 
but the other games in the series don't necessarily have that feel to them. I think, once again, DS1 is really, really restrictive so that, yes, someone who's playing at an extremely high level of play can have fun and be creative, but someone who's at a lower, like a medium average level of play isn't really going to be able to do that. They're just going to have to max out their character and find the things that just allow them to barely skate through each level, area, and boss. And I'm saying that as someone who I believe is at an average level of play. Like, I like to make a lot of jokes about how I suck at video games, but that's not true. I don't actually suck at video games. I think it's just like, I'm really good at a few specific types of video games, but overall, I'm not interested in mastery of video games. It doesn't appeal to me. I don't think it's fun. There are other things in my life that I feel I'm very skilled at and that deserve my attention. I really only play video games for fun. Now, having grown up in the 90s, playing a lot of 16-bit action games, I like difficult games. I like challenging games. But if a game expects me to like completely master it just to play it, I'm probably going to put it down. That's why I have a really hard time with Stalker, for example. That's a game I've gotten tons of requests for. I have played a bit of it. Of course, I love the vibe and the setting and the Tarkovsky movie. Stalker is one of my favorite movies of all time. But the fact that that's all wrapped up in like a super hardcore FPS is really off-putting to me. And that was kind of my takeaway from the previous Dark Souls episode I did, where I was talking about how I didn't like that all this cool world building and lore and aesthetics were wrapped up in a game that expected me to master it just in order to play it at all. That's just really not appealing to me. Playing the more balanced games in the series, I see that you don't necessarily need to be a master of these games to play them. They work well even if you are at an average level of play, and especially if you embrace the online modes that let you summon people for help. That was like such a game changer. Because full disclosure, and I don't know if I mentioned this earlier, I actually played DS1 offline. I had it on the Switch, and I didn't have an online account, so I was playing it all solo offline, which I had once again read, that's something you can do. And man, it was just miserable. Once again, there are so many mechanics and variables at play here that I do sort of resent the fact that people say, oh yeah, you can totally do this. Oh yeah, you can totally do that. Like, I don't think it's a reasonable expectation that anyone can pick up and play the original Dark Souls and beat it all solo offline. That's kind of a crazy thing to do. And I know a lot of people listening have done that. And you know what? I love you guys. That's so great for you. Mabruk, man, like you did such a good job. That's not for me. <laughs> and I think that for a lot of people, that's not for them. So I think that's why I got really frustrated after playing that game, seeing that people had told me to start with that game and seeing that that seemed to be such a consensus because I don't know, I, I just don't think that's the way to go. I also think this gets into the gatekeepy aspect of the Dark Souls fan base, that there really is this feeling that it's something very special that should be reserved for the people who are strong enough to do it or whatever, and like, bro, it's a video game. Like, it's supposed to be fun. It should just be for anybody who wants to try it and who wants to put in the time to play it. And I think it's really interesting that the later games in the series actually nailed this balance. Once again, they made something that calls back to those 16-bit action games. They're really hard, and a lot of people picking them up now would just say, nope, which is totally fair, but if you put the time in, you can learn it, you can play it, and you can have a good time. I think that added space and some of the added mechanics in Bloodborne and Dark Souls 3 also allow for that greater flexibility and creativity in play. Once again, the fact that you can actually run past enemies, the fact that you can navigate areas, and the fact that you can spend more time exploring and choosing your own pace makes the game feel a lot more personalized. And I think that's really the full evolution from something like Ghosts and Goblins to something like a modern Souls game. It's no longer just a riff on that type of game. It's its own thing entirely. One that takes a lot of inspiration from those games and a lot of inspiration from Castlevania 
and mixes it with, you know, super deep JRPG mechanics, as well as modern action game design and polish. Now, the last thing that I realized about this series when I was looking at all the games in it was that you really need to take them one at a time and view them as their own distinct thing. Whenever you start up a new game in the series, you need to learn how to play that game specifically. This is something that I think initially is kind of jarring because there is such a distinct style to the series. And there's so many ideas that are shared across the games that you feel like, hey, well, I know how to play this game, so I can play that game. I think that is wrong. And I think it's an approach that even some hardcore Souls fans will take when a new game in the series comes out to their own detriment. Now, this isn't a super well-researched or informed take, but I think that's kind of what's happening or what happened with Sekiro. Now, don't get me wrong, Sekiro sold a bunch of copies, it got really good review scores, etc., but it's also very easy to find a lot of hate for the game online, once again, even from people who like other games in the series. Now, this is a game that I've been curious about since it came out. I mean, the reason I started playing Dark Souls was because Sekiro looked cool. It looked like a modern version of something like Tenchu, you know, and I'm still curious to play it, but I saw so many people saying it's impossible it's way too hard, blah, 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 that I just never checked it out. And I think after doing some research, I realized that this might be at the root of the problem. When I'm looking at these games, I've found that it's really interesting to try and get inside the designers' heads and see what was their intention with it. What was the thing that they were going for when they made this game? Maybe it's just me, but this approach actually makes me more curious about the games and more forgiving of their flaws. I mean, I think that's part of the reason why I got into Bloodborne. Not just because it's a fun game on its own, but because I could see how much the design had changed and evolved from Dark Souls. And that was like a huge relief to me and also really, really engaging. Looking at Sekiro, I mean, they've stated clearly that they wanted to make a single-player offline game that still had a lot of those ideas that they've become known for. So there are balances in the gameplay style, in the difficulty, and a lot of those balances struck people the wrong way. However, I have to wonder how much of it is because they just went in and tried to play it like Dark Souls. That's something too with Bloodborne. I mean. Bloodborne is a game that you really cannot just jump in and play like Dark Souls. There are huge differences. Like I said, there's larger areas, enemies move and behave differently, it's a lot more about crowd control, the lock-on is a lot less important. These are huge, huge things if you've played a shit ton of Dark Souls and your brain has become trained to think of things in that way. Even for me, as someone who has a love-hate relationship with DS1, I had to unlearn a lot of traits. A simple one, for example, is dodging backwards versus dodging to the side. In Bloodborne, your character is fast and your dodge is huge. You can kind of dodge in any direction and it gives you a freedom of movement and a sense of speed that I would compare to like Shinobi on the PS2. You know, it's an awesome feeling and it's one that you just never get in Dark Souls. So while that was a relief when I started up Bloodborne, when I started up Dark Souls 3, I had to remember, oh shit, yeah, I should dodge to the side in this game because my character is slower and less mobile. It makes a lot more sense for me to do this. Dodging backwards in Dark Souls generally gets you punished in my experience. And despite how janky these games can be at times, I do feel like there is a lot of really, really smart game design. So I think it is kind of important, or at least it's helpful to the player to try and get inside the designer's heads and say, okay, what do they want me to do? What's the vibe here? And yeah, I just have to wonder how many people played Sekiro without doing that and just tried to play it like Dark Souls, got rocked, and gave up on the game. Now, once again, I haven't played it yet, but I'm really excited to. I think the design changes they made are really interesting. I think the idea of them making a single player offline experience is super fascinating. And I'm just really curious to see what they do with it. Okay, earlier I promised a music metaphor, and here it is. I think I find some games in this series really frustrating because 
they expect you to do the perfect run. Now, whether that's from one bonfire or another, or from a bonfire to a boss, you have so many restrictions and limitations placed upon you that you're expected to do it perfectly. There's no room for error, and there's no forgiveness. Now, I understand why that would be compelling or exciting to some people, but it's not to me. And I think part of it is that I already work in a field where we're constantly striving for a perfect run or a perfect take, and that's of course, music. You know, when you're recording something or when you're playing something live, you're trying to get things as close to perfection as possible. You're doing it over and over and over until you hit it in that way that everyone feels is just right. I think that in the realm that I work in, which is more like underground, experimental music, there is a lot of forgiveness, you know? You're not playing classical music. You're not playing, you know, most of the time with people who are classically trained even. You're kind of out in space and you're just trying to make something that's cool, that sounds good, and that has the right feel. I think that there's kind of a jazz versus classical thing going on here, right? Some of my favorite music of all time is that, you know, late 60s and early 70s period of jazz where musicians that had previously been playing in more traditional combos picked up electric instruments and just started doing weird shit. To me, the epicenter of this time are Herbie Hancock's Afrofuturist records and, of course, Miles Davis's more experimental stuff, most notably Bitches Brew, but for my money, Live Evil is actually the better record. On these albums, you heard people who were at a high level of play and who had a lot of skill just kind of doing whatever they felt like. Sometimes they were messing around or sometimes they were just trying to grab onto themes and ideas that were super weird and esoteric. To me, that's kind of like the peak of music. And it's something that I've carried into my own personal life as a musician and an engineer. I think that music is best when there is a sense of looseness and freedom to it that is contrasted with a lot of skill and a lot of knowledge. And that's really how I got into making the music that I make today. I mean, I'm technically classically trained. You know, I was taught the cello, I was taught a little bit of piano, a ton of music theory. I have all this stuff in my brain, but I'm also trying to just do something cool. And when I'm writing music, I often find myself chucking that shit out the window until I need it to solve a problem. Now that is to say, I have learned classical music and I've played classical music, and I know all about the perfect run. I know all about playing something note perfect. And here's the thing, I don't think it's fun, and I don't think it's enjoyable. To me, that's what sometimes these Souls games can feel like, you know, being handed a very complicated piece of classical music and being told to play it exactly right or you lose. I think that the lesson I learned from the cello, rather than, you know, I should know how to play every note of Handel's Messiah perfectly, is that intonation is the heart of the instrument. When you play a fretless instrument, intonation is kind of one of the most important skills that you learn. It's the idea that when you play a note, it's accurate. But the thing is, there aren't frets, and you're kind of moving around like crazy. At some point, you're not exactly going to play the right note. You might play a weird note that's a little too flat or too sharp. The idea here is that you get good enough at the instrument that you can correct. You can move yourself to the correct note, the correct position, and everything will sound good. And maybe that little slide or that little mistake will even be cool. To me, that's what playing Bloodborne feels like. Yes, you're within a strict discipline, You're trying to do something that requires a high level of play and a high level of skill, but there's forgiveness, and sometimes your mistakes are even kind of cool. You might want to keep it in the recording. To me, that's the real joy of play. And I know that the comparison between music and video games isn't one-to-one, but the joy of play is something that holds strong between both mediums. And to me, it's something that I think is very very important. If something becomes joyless, if something becomes a slog, it becomes a bad experience and you don't want to partake in it anymore. Putting down one of these games kind of feels like quitting a band if you're doing it for, you know, angry or resentful reasons. And that's not a good feeling. 
I think ultimately that's why I was able to dive so deep into Bloodborne is because I felt that joy of play. It felt good to experience this game. And ultimately, I just had a good time. Whether it was alone or with friends, it was just super fun to play. I enjoyed experiencing the game world. I enjoyed looking at all the crazy design and aesthetics. I just had a really, really good time. And that was something that I guess I wasn't expecting from a game in this series, which is why it was so eye-opening and why I'm now so eager to play the other games in the series and eager to talk about them. Next time, my friend Michelle will join for a discussion of Bloodborne that goes deeper into the specifics of that game and not so much about the whole Soul series. So look forward to that and I will see you guys then.